Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Romans chapter number two. Romans chapter number two. In just a few moments, we will begin reading in verse number 28. Romans 2, verse 28. He was 16 years of age when he broke onto a scene with quite a force. He is the first who won all four of the the major competitions in men's tennis. He did so on four different courts, three different surfaces, and he stood out. I mean, he starts at 16. By the time he was 18, he's dominating the circuit. Uh, John McEnroe, one of the, the historic great tennis players, said that Andre Agassi had the most powerful forehand in all of men's tennis. So Agassi breaks onto this tennis scene, age 16, by 18, 19, he's dominating. And he does so with this persona that is kind of this rebel on the court. And some, some advertising agencies picked up on that. So Canon, the camera maker, had a camera that was called the Rebel. I think Canon still makes the, the Rebel camera. Back then, I'm certain it used film, you know, that you actually had to develop, but, but that was back in the day. And so Andre Agassi does the commercial for the Rebel, uh, a 35 millimeter camera. The, the whole commercial, 30 seconds of the commercial is all about these images and Agassi fits the bill. I mean, he's this, this rebel, he's this cool 19-year-old, and they said, okay, while you're filming this, they, they do all these different shots, but the final shot of Agassi is him, 19 years of age, he gets out of this white Lamborghini, and he comes out, and he lowers his glasses, and then he says to the camera, image is everything. And that commercial became not only famous, but somewhat infamous. And, and Agassi was all about the image. In fact, if you remember early, you know, Agassi images, you know it's quite different than the latter Agassi images. When Agassi began, he had this really full head of hair. And it was really interesting because it was really thick on top and then it was long on the sides. And it was, I mean, it was like his trademark. It was almost lion-like, this mane that just, you know, surrounds his head. So Agassiz got this full head of hair. Well, what came to be revealed later, in fact, he wrote about it in his autobiography. Um, at 19, he began to go bald, okay? Well, this is a big deal for a guy whose image is everything. So Agassi actually wore a wig for a lot of his tennis career. So he has this headband that he always wore. It, it kept the wig secure. And Agassi says in his autobiography that he almost lost a major tournament, the French Open. He all, no, 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 actually he was beaten in the final round of the French Open. And he was beaten because he even wrote his brother earlier. He says, I'm worried because my wig is actually, there's some problems with it. It was falling apart. Can you imagine if it falls off in the middle of a good shot and then his hair goes one way? And <laughs> Agassi is really bothered about this and he's thinking about it the entire match. 
And he said, I lost the match because I couldn't focus on what I'm supposed to be doing. I was so concerned about my image. Well, not long thereafter, Agassiz comes out and he shaved his head, completely shaves his head. So he went from bushy to bald and, and he does so and he says while he's, while he's um, communicating this, again, it was in an article that I read, but from his autobiography, that it was liberating. He said, I never felt such personal freedom when I stopped trying to maintain an image. Image can be a heavy thing to carry. That I have to be this. I have to portray this. I have to communicate this. Everybody assumes I am this. And what a burden for a person to carry. Let me ask you, is image really everything? According to the religion of the Jews, image really was everything. It didn't matter so much what a person was, so long as they had the externals checked. As long as all of those things that portrayed them as something that they were supposed to be, so long as all of that's taken care of, as far as the Jews' religion was concerned, image was everything. The, the Pharisees had become so obsessed with the rule of law that to them, image was everything and they would do anything to protect the image. The, the Torah, th- this is the law, the, the books of Moses that were given. The Torah, God gave his people laws. Some of those laws were picture laws. They were these ordinances. They, they helped to communicate something that God was going to do in the person of Jesus Christ. Some of those laws were moral laws. We're more familiar with those moral laws when they were codified in what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. But the, the, the Jewish religion began to take the Torah and just surround it with additional laws. Now the laws that God gave, they were prolific. God gave the Jews all of these remembrances for him, 613 in all in the Torah. But but then the, the, the religion of the Jews takes the Torah and they create what's referred to as the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah is this attempt to systematize the law. Okay, so God gave the law. Here's how we're going to organize and here's how you're going to live the law. It was their attempt to, in a sense, say, here's our stamp on God's stamp. They're trying to systematize God's system. The Pharisees became obsessed with their own laws. Their image, if you will, was more important than God's. They added rule upon rule in an attempt to protect the rule. Not everybody in here would remember this, but how many of you remember back when they used to make these custom clear plastic covers for your furniture? How many of you remember those? How many of you are glad they're not still a thing? Okay, they were really uncomfortable. Okay, so you'd sit down on this clear plastic cover that was made for, you know, for your furniture. 
Well, it wasn't comfortable. It it wasn't actually very good looking, but it was an attempt and it's okay. Listen, if you still do that, it's okay. You can protect that which is yours. But you know what the Pharisees started to do? They started to become obsessed with the cover, not the thing the cover was protecting. And then because they're so consumed with the cover, they actually made covers for the cover. And then they got obsessed with the cover for the cover. So they made a cover for the cover for the cover. And then they made a cover. Well, you get the idea. Okay, they kept covering. So they're layering all of these things because it became more important than the very thing they were attempting to protect. Even today, the the religion of the Jews today continues to add layers, covers, so to speak, to, to protect the thing that they have almost lost in the covering. They, they made rules and lots of them, rules about how much you could lift to your mouth on the Sabbath. They didn't want to, to break the rule of work, how much you could swallow at a time on the Sabbath. Even today, rules are being added Some very orthodox Jews say you can't take a plug and plug it into a light socket because that is work. Now, now here's what you can do. You can hold the plug next to the socket. And I'm not joking about this. You can hold the plug next to the socket. You just can't push it in with your hand. Now, you can hold it there with one hand and you can kind of lean on it with your elbow. You can put it there. You can kind of lean on it with your back. You can even, now they codify this. You can take the plug. Don't push it in with your hand, but you can push it in with your forehead. Just don't work with your fingers on the Sabbath day. Rule upon rule, layer upon layer, because to them, images everything. Even so far back or so recent as 2020, the, the rabbis, the scribes add an additional layer. They said, you can't walk into a building where they're actually doing temperature scanning because now there's some transfer of heat and this then codify is codified in our law's work. And additionally, it's going to have something that is read out on a monitor and that is writing on the Sabbath day. All of these, again, to protect the image that is more important than the person they are to represent. Let's take a look at what may be one of the most vehemently held signs of the religion of the Jews. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 28. Romans 2 verse 28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, that is image. Now let me read that again because this is very important. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul talks about something that is far more important than an external sign. The Apostle Paul is going straight to what we refer to as the heart of the matter. 
Paul does this obviously throughout his writings, but it's not unique to him. This thought is not isolated to the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, listen to verse number 16. God tells his people to circumcise, listen, your heart and be no more stiff-necked. He said, there is something that has to be taken away from the callousness of your own hearts. Then in his, farewell, in his farewell address, Moses speaking to the people says again, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Later, the prophets do the same thing. We're trying to understand this is not something that's unique to Paul. This is all through scripture. This has always been God's plan, not just the external sign, not just the image that we're trying to portray. Ezekiel 44, verse number nine, thus saith the Lord God, no stranger uncircumcised in heart nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary or any stranger that is among the children of Israel. Where does God begin? Even with the prophets, he says, listen, this is a matter first and foremost, a matter of the heart. The tendency of mankind to trust in ritual rather than reality has always been a challenge. We often live on the surface and neglect the deeper matters of the heart. As we conclude chapter two in Romans, starting to wrap up this dark backdrop of sin, God begins to show us this means by which there is no intrinsic power, no individual protection in the outward signs. But we also see there is no impossible person to whom the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ cannot reach. Let's begin by looking at no intrinsic power. In other words, he's saying, listen, there is nothing powerful in and of itself in the sign, the externals. This is a matter of the heart. Look again at verse number 28. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. The external pictures that can be seen are valuable. So let me say that again. The external pictures, the things that a person can see, these things are valuable, but never are they most important. And they're only valuable so far as they illustrate that which is hidden, the hidden work of the heart. Notice the process of a, per of a person's salvation. Okay, so when a person comes to know Jesus personally, Maybe you're newer here and you say, well, what do you even mean by that? Well, well let's, let's start to explore what does it mean for a person to have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son? Well, it, it always begins in the heart. What, what's the process by which a person actually begins a relationship with God? Listen to what the Bible says. Romans chapter 10, verse number 10. Listen to what it says, for with the, now if you know the next word, you've, got, you've had a lot of hints, but let's say it together, for with the heart, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and then it says, and with the, now be careful about this one, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the, who knows the next word, and with the mouth, good. 
For with the heart man believeth, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Let me ask you, what good does it do for a person to, with their mouth, say, I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that Jesus is my only answer to heaven. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and nobody can come to God the Father except they come through the person of Jesus. What good does it do a person to say that if they don't first believe that? With the heart, man believes, with the mouth, confession is made. We should ask, what good is confession of the mouth without believing in the heart? Okay, so Philip. Philip is one of the disciples and he is doing the work of God. Jesus has already died, been buried, risen from the grave and now ascended to heaven. Philip's doing the work of an evangelist. He's he's sharing the good news and God says, hey, hey, here's somebody I want you to tell this good news to. This was an Ethiopian, a very important, prominent person. And he's reading in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah. Philip comes up to him and he says, hey, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And, and this, this Ethiopian, he says, how can I read? Uh, how can I understand unless somebody tells me? And so Philip says, hey, can I tell you? He says, yeah, come on up here, sit down. So he comes up, he sits in his chariot and, and on they go. And, and Philip begins to just unfold the truth of Jesus Christ to this very important, this man of a lot of authority and power, this Ethiopian. Well, after he shared the gospel, he asks an honest question, this Ethiopian. He says, hey, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Whoa, whoa, stop the chariot. There's water down there. And this Ethiopian, he says, he says, hey, listen, can I be baptized? Listen to what he says. Let me read the scripture. It's Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 36. He says, and as they went their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I want to, I want to follow Jesus in baptism. Okay, notice what Philip then says in response. And Philip said, verse 37, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down, both of them, into the water, both Philip and the, and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Do you know what Philip just tells me? He says, hey, hey, can I be baptized? There's water here. And he says, well, first things first. Do you believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And this Ethiopian, he says, yes, I do. He says, okay, then stop the chariot, let's go. You see, it was salvation in the heart before it was some proclamation with his life. Don't diminish the importance of baptism, but don't miss the necessary order of the same. Belief in Christ, in his heart came first. Then the external public picture of his internal private pronouncement followed. Baptism only then had meaningful significance and an opportunity to actually be pleasing to God. Not because it was an outward work, but because it was an outward expression of an inner working of God. It'd be kind of like, um, have you ever seen people do some, I don't know, religious, uh, religious thing, hoping that that would kind of please God? 
I read a story, there's two boxers, they're sitting before the match begins on opposite corners and one boxer, you see him kind of do this little prayer and then he points to heaven, okay? And the boxer that's sitting down, he watches this happen and he says to his coach, he says, does that do any good? Because he wanted to know, he's about to, you know, he's a little nervous and this guy prays, points to heaven. He says, does that do any good? And the coach wisely said, only if he can punch, okay? (laughs) You know, there is this sense that like, if I go through the motion, Have you ever watched people go through religious motions before? Let me ask you, do the religious motions help? Only if they're a reflection of something that is far deeper. The motion, the the, the observance, the baptism, none of those are intended to be isolated things. They're all intended to be expressions of something that is far deeper. If you're looking for some outward form like baptism, to be your spiritual membership card to heaven, then according to scripture, you are sadly mistaken. Theologian Charles Hodge wrote the following. Whenever true religion declines, the disposition, the tendency to lay undue stress on external rights is stressed. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, supposed that circumcision had the power to save them. Apostasy always moves the religious focus from the inward to the outward, from humble obedience to empty formality. Do you know any person in here could could fall prey to the same? Empty formality. Well, yeah, I go to church because it's Sunday and that's what Christians do. Isn't there something bigger than that's what Christians do? There are certain things that I don't do because those are the things that Christians don't do. But for what purpose? Yes, I I pray and I fast and I, I do all the things. To what end or for what purpose? What's the matter of the heart? This is the matter that Paul is addressing and clearly it's a matter that Jesus very directly addressed. Jesus is addressing this matter with the full force of his own indignation. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse number 25, Jesus said, woe unto you. It's the strongest of warnings that Jesus uses. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he uses the word, and there's an exclamation point that follows. Hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but are within full of extortion and excess. Hey, how many of you, when you were a kid, how many of you ever carried an actual lunchbox to school? How many of you ever carried a lunchbox? Lots of you did. Um, How many of you had a metal lunchbox with like Superman or somebody on it and a thermos that went along with it? How many of you ever had, oh, lots of you did. Okay, so I had the same. I had a little metal lunchbox and one of those matching thermoses that, that went along with it. How many of you, like the last day of school, kind of forgot about your lunchbox? Now, it might have made it home, but it didn't make it back to the kitchen. How many of you ever found your lunchbox after summer was over getting ready for the next year? And some of you have this look on your face. Some moms in here have the look on their face like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know exactly what he's talking. Okay, so, so sometimes we forget about it and then we, we look for it. Oh yeah, we found it. We get our lunchbox out and mom, here's my lunchbox. And, Have you ever opened one of those lunchboxes that had been forgotten? And especially the thermos, okay. You pull the Superman thermos out and it is Superman, I'm just telling you. 
you pull that out and you open it up and that Campbell's soup has been cooking for a few months, okay? I mean, how many moms say, oh, goodness sakes, that's bad. Let me wash this thing. And they wash the outside of the thermos and send their kid packing with Campbell's soup, you know? Listen, no mom's going to, especially if you're the first. If you're the first child, she's going to clean the whole. If you're the fourth or fifth, she'll, that's okay. You know, she'll <laughs> send you on your way. L- listen, what mom is going to not clean the whole thing? You say, well, well, it's most important she cleans the inside. Listen, a good mom's going to, she's going to clean the whole thing. She's going to boil it in water. She's going to get the pressure washer. She's going to do the whole thing, okay? Do you know what Jesus is saying? He says, how, how ludicrous how upside down is this? That, that you have taken the outside of the cup or the platter and you've washed the outside, but the inside's full of corruption. He says, you're like a whited sepulcher. He says, you're, you're like something that looks really beautiful on the outside, but we all know what's rotting on the inside. This is a very strong denunciation of removing the external from the internal. Does Jesus say that the external doesn't matter because sometimes we swing to that that pendulum swing? He's not saying the external is unimportant. He's saying it's just supposed to be a natural result of what happens from the internal. Don't throw the external out. Don't say, well, it doesn't matter. The external doesn't matter because because this is a matter. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Yeah, he does look on the heart. And you know what happens? There's been a radical change of heart that produces a radical change of life. I don't have to go to the image is everything. I better keep up appearances. Now there's something that naturally produces something externally because it has happened dynamically internally. There is no intrinsic power in the externals removed as the natural product from the internals. The other thing that he says here is he says there's no individual protection. Listen, don't you think, Jesus is saying, just because you have followed external rights that you are taken care of, for example, today in our terminology, we'd say, well, I'm, hey, are you going to heaven? Sure, I was baptized. Well, well, why does that mean heaven to you? Well, because that's, that's what religious people do. That's not what Jesus says. This is a person who thinks, I have some individual protection. Listen, there's no intrinsic power. There's no individual protection. If you back up a verse, Romans 2, 27. If you're still in in Romans 2, look at verse number 27. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law. He says, hey, listen, the uncircumcised are actually going to be your judge because they've gotten something right as a matter of the heart. Have you ever purchased some kind of, I don't know, protection package, insurance, and then when, when something actually happened, they said, oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't cover that. Sorry, oh, no, you, know, you dropped your phone, you broke your phone. And oh, thankfully, I have insurance. And so you, you take it to the place or you, you call and you say, hey, I dropped my phone. Oh, we're so sorry, it doesn't cover dropping, you know. Well, what does it cover? And they read this whole list of like alien invasion, things along those lines, but, but it doesn't cover dropping your phone, you know. Do you know the Jews thought for sure, well, the external rights, I'm covered if I have the externals. 
Today we'd say, hey, I'm covered if I'm, if I'm baptized or I'm covered if I'm a church member or I'm covered if I grew up in a Christian home. So, no, 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 no. There is no individual protection from the externals. The religion of the Jews looked at their formalism as protection. Clearly, the outward keeping of the law was their insurance package. Listen to what some of the rabbis wrote. One Jewish commentary on the book of Moses said, no circumcised man will see hell. Another wrote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Another rabbi wrote, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not, uh, and does not allow any circumcised to enter there. Do you know what they're saying? Hey, we're okay because we're keeping the external laws. Sadly, the Jewish rabbis had traded the external for the internal and called it sufficient. There was just some empty shell, but nothing that was the product of the heart. The Queen Mary is one of those grand, old, now obviously retired ships. It was the largest ship to cross the oceans when it was launched in 1936. It, it, it was about 140 feet longer than the Titanic. And she sailed for four decades. She was outfitted, helped in World War II. It was really quite a, quite a profound history for this grand ship. And during the conversion from active service to becoming a museum and a hotel in its permanent location, they, they removed, it's reported that they removed the three smokestacks and they were going to scrape down the smokestacks and repaint them and replace them. And while they're taking these down, they found that they literally crumbled. There was three quarter inch steel that these were comprised of. But over the course of a lot of years, that steel had eroded and it had simply rusted away. And what remained was more than 30 coats of paint that actually kept the form in place. Do you know what's interesting? That sometimes in churches just like ours, it can be year after year after year of another coat of paint on the formalism of religion when the substance, the reality, the thing that forms it in the first place has actually rusted away years ago. When Jesus points his finger, he is pointing his finger at those who are the possessors of the truth of the day. And, and that truth had long since departed. They were simply protecting what they had covered with another layer and another layer and another layer. And the substance was actually lost in the covering. Do you know the last thing that we see here is is not only no intrinsic power and no individual protection, but thanks be to God, no impossible person. In the Jews' economy, it is us for and no more, but not in God's economy. In God's economy, there is no impossible person. Notice what he says in verse number 29. Romans 2, verse 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, 
but of God. Yes, the dark backdrop of sin has been clearly presented throughout Romans 1 and 2. But there is now this sliver of light that begins to appear. Albeit faint, but it is on the horizon of mankind. The dawn is about to break. The sun is about to rise. And the wonderful glory of Jesus Christ is about to be manifest. And to whom is this wonderful truth available? To any who begin first with matters of the heart. Notice these two concluding thoughts. First, righteousness results in practice. Religion results in pictures. Righteousness results in practice. When God does a work of righteousness in my heart, something changes about my life. Righteousness results in practice, but religion, man's religion, it rests in the pictures, the external, that thing that is supposed to show that I must be righteous. One man said it this way, while it is true that good works are not the means of our salvation, they are the measure of our salvation. A person can see like, wow, there's something different about their life. By their works, they actually show something has happened in their heart. And the second observation is righteousness is based on God's work. Religion is based on our own. There's a second balancing truth in this passage, and that is genuine righteousness is based on God's effort. Religion is based on our efforts. When Jesus was meeting with a man by the name of Nicodemus, he begins to dismantle the exclusive religion of the Pharisees. And it was staggering to Nicodemus. He, he's saying, how can these things be? And Jesus is saying, listen, don't you marvel at this. Are you a ruler of the Jews? Nicodemus, you're a ruler, a teacher of the Jews, and you don't know these things? Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's not by your works of righteousness. He really says, you have to have a new birth. Something that you've never had before. It's not, Nicodemus, through all of the outward keeping of the law. He says, start with the heart. And I'll give you a new power, a new ability, a new life that allows you to actually desire to keep the law. The disciples asked the question, who can be saved? And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. How can a person like you, how can a person like me ever stand in the presence of holy God and enjoy all of eternity, enjoying the blessings of the same? How can these things be? Let me tell you, with men, impossible. And it's certainly not going to happen with the outward keeping of the law. You're not good enough. There's only one who was, and his name is Jesus. Do you know what Jesus did? He satisfied every demand of the law perfectly. And then he died a sinner's death. You say, if he kept the law, why die a sinner's death? Because he died. We use this word, he died a vicarious death. He died in someone's place. You say, whose, whose place was that? Mine. Yours? Yeah, yeah, my place. 
and yours. He died in my place. He died in yours. Do you know he offers that, that exchange for all who would receive it? You, you may have been baptized very early. In fact, you may have been baptized as an infant. You may have been baptized into a church membership. You, you may be a member of a church. And all those things, baptism, membership, they're valuable, but not if they come first. They are to be the natural overflow of the heart. Image is not everything. Start with the heart and may other people see externally what Jesus did internally and you'll find that his image, the image of Jesus Christ, not yours, actually becomes everything.